we need to be extra attuned to the fact that we need to optimize that pot of money because we can't just go and make more of it very easily without being subject to all, running afoul of all these rules. So you need to do the best you can with what you have. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to episode 159 of APM Success. Today, we're going to be talking about building a career in academic medicine and translating the financial wherewithal generated by that career, translating that into lasting wealth. And how do you do that intelligently as an academic anesthesiologist? Is it even possible? (laughs) The obvious answer is yes, but you need to take a little bit of a different approach if you're going to be an academic anesthesiologist versus one who perhaps has more flexibility in a private practice arrangement. And for the purposes of today's discussion, obviously there's private practice, there's a, several different types. I'm going to be looking at essentially university hospital employment for today's purposes, or also government hospital employment when I'm talking about academic medicine. It may surprise some people in this audience to know that the, fo- the folks that make the most and the folks that make the least in medicine, this is true in anesthesia, make it in private practice. This is also true in pain management. It's a much flatter distribution. Academic medicine has a a lower standard deviation. Private practice has a higher standard deviation. Some make a little, some make a lot. But the people that make the least are often actually not in the university setting, interestingly. One thing to note in terms of the environment, the landscape at large, CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is the arm of the Department of Health and Human Services, among other things, one of the things that they do is they determine how much Medicare and other government payers are going to pay for different services, whether it's the physician labor or the facility fee or the malpractice component associated with RVU billing. And CMS has just recently come out with a proposed 4% cut to the physician labor portion of the reimbursement calculation, meaning folks operating in private practice are more and more getting squeezed and more and more of the funds coming from CMS are flowing to organizations that own bigger chunks of the infrastructure. The bottom line here is that, you know, for purposes of this discussion, more and more employment is going to be available in the academic realm rather than private practice. (laughs) And longtime listeners of this show will have heard a number of conversations on this topic. Most recently, talked to Dr. Brian Schmutzler a few episodes ago. It was more than a handful ago. We'll post it in the show notes. apmsuccess.com slash 159. I'm going to link to a number of resources today. But Dr. Schmutzler, as one who operates uh, exclusively in private practice, was not too optimistic about the future of private practice anesthesia in large part because of what Medicare is, how Medicare is reimbursing or in this case, not reimbursing private practitioners. Anyway, with more and more of the larger percentage of jobs being available in academic medicine, it's important to understand the approach you need to take in order to properly and efficiently build wealth, develop autonomy, and live life on your own terms as quickly as possible. The average anesthesiologist is going to go through undergrad and then med school and then four plus years of 
advanced training and residency and fellowship, and they're going to be in their 30s before they even start making money as an attending physician. So you've got a lot to make up for in terms of the opportunity cost of your time, and it's important that you use this higher earning potential and the time that you have remaining between the age of 31 or you know later, depending on when you're getting your start, and whatever ultimate age you want to begin to curtail your clinical activities. You got to make the best use of, that you can of that time. There's a few important headwinds that you've got to know about. The first is historically, the joke in some circles is that you get that last $100,000 in prestige. Meaning if you're working for a big reputable name, they have the ability to draw talent from all over the place. They're going to be a sought after work environment. You want to publish and be renowned at a place like that. That's the place you're going to go. And as a result, maybe the compensation isn't as much in terms of the dollars because you're getting paid in prestige. Something to think about. And to be honest, I found that in, in the last year, the, <laughs> the tide has been changing with certain academic institutions in particular, where some anesthesiologists are getting 10, 15% raises to their base rate in addition to big signing bonuses from places where historically it's been much more stingy. So something to be aware of is that University hospitals are doing things that they haven't ever done before, at least in recent memory, in order to recruit. But in general, that's a headwind, getting money, <laughs> getting paid in quote-unquote prestige. A second headwind is academic medicine frequently will subject you to a very stringent employment agreement. Many pages, whenever I review these, <laughs> it's kind of annoying because you read the agreement itself, and then embedded in the agreement is a little section where you're going to initial that says, by the way, I also agree to you know, all the rules outlined in this document, document A and document B and document C and rules for hospital house staff and, you know, all the other components of this agreement. So all told, the thing could be like 200 pages spread across a bunch of documents that they don't even give you in some cases, or you need to really dig to find. So often the result of that very stringent agreement is you can't participate in other businesses at all in some cases or medically related businesses Intellectual property is almost always going to be fully signed over, whether or not you've, you were on the clock when you developed it. Participating in outside consulting is very difficult, and locums is also, in many cases, categorically excluded, even if you're not directly competing with your employer, which I always thought was really dumb. If you wanted to take a week of vacation and turn that week into $18,000 or $22,000 with a cush locums gig, you should be able to do that, but that's just one man's opinion. These are all headwinds. Meaning you're going to, in many cases, be restricted to just your W-2 income, just your paycheck, just your base plus bonus or however your pay is structured. And so because you're working with a discrete pie, that's D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E, -E, a discrete amount of money, we've got to make sure that it, we, we need to be extra attuned to the fact that we need to optimize that pot of money because... Uh, we can't just go and make more of it very easily without being subject to all, running afoul of all these rules. So you need to do the best you can with what you have. So what I want to do is lay out a few ideas, suggestions, recommendations for folks who are in this place to make sure that you're doing the best you can. First, if you have a base plus bonus structure where there are periodic bonuses paid out, it's a great idea, if possible, to set your lifestyle at the base level and use the bonuses for turbocharging savings. 
This is especially effective if you have something like 25 to 40% of your pay coming in that variable component. If we use round numbers and say your total comp is $400,000 and 300,000 of it is base and 100,000 is bonus. Being able to not only max your retirement accounts within your base, but also preserving the entire bonus for either savings or debt pay down, that really takes the emotional and mental effort out of building wealth because you know every time the bonus comes, like clockwork every quarter or every you know, twice a year or whatever, you're going to be able to just deploy that cash. And you don't need to think about your lifestyle changing at all in order to do that. Dr. Jimmy Turner, my friend down at Wake Forest, he and I have talked about this topic in the past. He has what he calls the 90-10 rule, which I really think is a great idea. Every bonus, you have this sort of fixed ratio that you're going to assign to that bonus. If you get a $100,000 bonus, 90% of that goes to your financial progress and 10% of it goes to some extravagant celebration of your professional progress as a physician to, you know, add a little spice, a little zest to your life. I think that is a great idea. And it also allows the 90% to continue to be sustainably saved over time because you got to have fun or else what the heck is the point. So using that base plus bonus structure in that manner can be really helpful. The second thing that's really important if you're going to build wealth in academic medicine is understanding the retirement plan for your employer. If you're with a state-sponsored university or hospital, often you'll have some sort of pension attached or a 401a or one of these other types of retirement plans. Sometimes you can contribute to that. Sometimes it's something that only your employer contributes to. These can be really, really powerful. Out here on the West Coast, we've got the Kaiser Kaiser Permanente Health System. They have a really robust pension that can be the equivalent, actually be the equivalent of many millions of dollars in assets. Once you think about how much that benefit is worth when it's paid out in retirement. If we use the, the 4% rule as a proxy for every million dollars you have at retirement in your portfolio, you can take about 4% of that or $40,000 of income from that portfolio until the end of your life. So for every million, 40,000 of income can be generated, meaning if your pension is 80 or 120 or $160,000 in retirement, it's worth, you know, 80,000 is the equivalent of a $2 million portfolio. 120 is the equivalent of a $3 million portfolio. So having a pension payment in that amount can be a really, really powerful tool that obviously you need to sort of understand the way it nestles into your broader financial plan, but that can be really, really useful. You shouldn't exclusively plan on that pension to bail you out in retirement, but as part of an overall strategy, it really helps. Make sure you understand it. The second thing, this is probably obvious, but you're still going to be a high income professional. So max out everything, probably pre-tax when you're in attending with a full year salary. So 403B, if you have access to one, HSAs, if you have access to those, 403B in the year 2022, you can do $20,500. HSAs for a family is about 7,300 bucks. So between the two of those, you're at about 28 grand for a single person, or I should say a single earner. And that's all pre-tax. So it's going to reduce your taxable income in the current year. Another common plan that you may be presented with is a 457. If you have access to a 457, it's going to have the same limit as the 403B, 20,500. But you've got to be careful because, and we're going to do a separate episode on 457s in the near future, but there's a lot of distribution 
constraints, depending on the type of 457 you have, there's different options for payout. And to be honest, it doesn't even really help you to save money pre-tax in a 457 in some cases. And here's why. You need to immediately distribute the funds upon terminating employment or immediately choose one of a handful of options. And sometimes you don't want the money. The whole point is when you're saving in a 457, you're saving it pre-tax, you wanna save it for retirement when you're not making a lot of money and you can pull it out in the future at a lower tax rate. But it totally defeats the purpose if the 457 forces you to take the money out as soon as you quit this job because then that money becomes taxable income. And if you have to take the whole thing in one year, then it actually could work against you because that's all being taxed at perhaps the highest tax rate, which is totally not what you want to do. Sometimes they can be rolled over into an IRA or into another retirement plan. Sometimes they can be rolled over only into another 457, which could work if you're going from one university hospital to another university hospital that also has a 457. But if you're going from university ABC to a big private practice, then you're out of luck. Private practice is not going to have a 457 and you're going to have to take distribution of those assets, perhaps at an inconvenient time. In addition, a 457 doesn't have the same protections as a 403B. A 457 is really just an IOU. It's not an account with your name on it that nobody else can touch. It's an asset owned by your employer that says, we promise to pay you this amount in the future. But if something happens like our bankruptcy, or our acquisition by another organization that has a different idea about what they want to happen with this asset that yes, is currently earmarked for you, but might not be in the future, then all that money that you saved could be at risk. So 457 is a distinctly different bucket, even though it's similar for tax treatment purposes, you wanna be careful how you utilize that. There may be a TSP involved, a thrift savings plan. If you're at a VA or other government facility, That's an, it functions similarly in terms of contributions, making pre-tax contributions, and uh, being able to reduce your taxable income in the current year. Another thing to be aware of that you want to make sure you maximize, and this is another thing that draws people in some cases to the academic setting, is some of the other perks. There can be, you know, nice childcare benefits, dependent care FSA. Maybe there's a, a tuition break for your kids. If you're at University of Pennsylvania, you know, uh, at HUP, the hospital, University of Pennsylvania, maybe you can send your kids to UPenn for free if they can get in. Wouldn't that be awesome? God only knows what Penn is going to cost 18 years from now, but <laughs> that may end up being a half a million dollar benefit or more for undergrad someday. And to be able to have that at your disposal I mean, especially if you have a bunch of kids, you can send them all to an Ivy League school and save yourself the couple million dollars in cumulative tuition costs because you can bet that if you're an anesthesiologist, you're not going to be qualifying for any federal aid. Although if your kids are smart enough, maybe you'll get some grants or some, uh, you know, some merit-based aid. So capitalizing on those perks, especially for those big ticket items like tuition reimbursement can be really useful. And then finally, in terms of perks, this isn't through your employer, but it is through the government. If you have federal student loans, there's the Public Service Loan Forgiveness, PSLF program. Understanding the PSLF program, understanding the best path forward in that program and how to keep your costs as low as possible, minimize your payments, maximize your tax-free forgiveness, which can be yours after 10 years. This is especially useful if you've done four years of residency, maybe a fellowship or two or three. If you're one of those super smart people that's triple boarded, you're now seven years into training. You've hardly made any money at that point. And after 
that seven years, you've only been paying between one and $200 a year on your student loans. Your balance has continued to grow. You're only now going to have three years worth of higher payments on the back end. And then you're going to receive a significant PSLF benefit if you have a lot of loans from med school and or undergrad and or any other degrees that you have accumulated along the way. So optimizing PSLF is really, really important. My friends over at Student Loan Planner, quick shout out to Travis Hornsby and his team. They've done incredible work creating a lot of education around optimizing student loan strategies. They do fee-for-service student loan consulting. Highly recommend if you're thinking you need a student loan plan and you just want to pay somebody, you know, five or 600 bucks in order to get a comprehensive looking at all the moving parts and telling you how to elect the best repayment strategy. Check them out. They, they're, uh, they do really great work. I don't have any relationship with them now. I used to consult with them for a couple of years and in getting very close to them, can only recommend them all the more highly. So that's student loans. Another mistake you need to avoid if you're in academic medicine, and I'll tell you, these university programs often attract <laughs> the way, you know, like a wounded animal attracts the piranhas in the Amazon or something. Uh, it attracts insurance salespeople, those uh, wolves in sheep's clothing that are really product salespeople who aren't really attuned to your more broad financial picture or your financial future. They're just looking for a commission. And there's a lot of really great people, a lot of really great people stuck in bad business models. So this is not a carte blanche condemnation of insurance people. I need them. I love them. The really good ones in my life are invaluable. And I work closely with them to serve my clients. But the ones who are pushing whole life policies, permanent insurance of different flavors on unsuspecting residents, fellows, and even early career attendings, I think they're just fundamentally, well, we have different, <laughs> a different way, a different understanding of the way that financial planning should happen. I don't know many physicians, if any, that under the age of 40 should be buying whole life insurance. There's a lot of other more productive things you should be doing with your money. And whole life insurance is going to grow at a much, in general, over long periods of time, is going to grow at a much slower rate than our, uh, you know, the stock market or even other investments. And so if you're going to lock up your money for a long, long period of time, and especially if you're going to lock up, I, I was talking to an attending the other day who got a, you know, a thousand or $1,500 a month premium payment into a whole life policy for someone who had only been in attending for a year or two and was not already, you know, they had student loan debt and they're not maxing out other options. You're going to get stuck in the situation where you're plowing a bunch of money into assets that aren't going to grow as quickly as some others. In addition, you're introducing complexity into your life that it could, you know, lapse in the future and you need to make sure that you're feeding it appropriately and you need to understand the assumptions baked into it, etc. So bottom line is I always avoid whole life in general as a an early career attending or younger. Once you move towards financial independence and you're looking for other tax opportunities, places to pick up nickels and dimes around the edges, you can make a case for it in estate planning. You can make a case for it in certain cases for specific uses. But in general, I haven't seen many whole life policies <laughs> that I think were properly implemented, especially for young physicians. So you got to avoid those if you're going to build wealth intelligently. Just one man's opinion. Finally, when it comes to your job description, you want to identify uncompensated activities and limit them to the extent that you're trying to maximize your income. So in academic medicine, there's a, it's obviously to be a good colleague, to be a contributor to your department, you've got to do some things, 
some of which are don't explicitly result in you making more money, and that's fine, and that's some of the reason that some people go into academic medicine is to exert influence, to publish papers, to lead initiatives, and great. If that's what you're doing and it's making you happy and feeling fulfilled, then I don't want to get in your way. But if you're doing those things out of a vague sense of obligation and you don't really like them and you discover that they're not actually, you're, you're not being compensated for those things. You're actually better off probably working 0.8 and taking another day a week to start some other business rather than running committees, overseeing initiatives and doing other things for which you're not given the proper amount of time to really um, carve out of your schedule. This is especially true if your pay is based in any way on productivity or hours and those non-clinical times that you're spending are taking away from your productivity or your clinical hours. So make sure that you understand what you're getting paid for and what you're not getting paid for and do only the things you're getting paid for to the extent that you're just trying to you know, boost your income. If you wanna do the other stuff non-clinically, great. We need people to do that, <laughs> obviously, but you wanna understand how it impacts you. A couple other things I'll mention in closing. Academic anesthesiologists can be a good candidate for something like real estate investment. If you're a high income professional, you're going to benefit from a lot of the tax breaks associated with real estate investing, cash depreciation, uh, passive income. Those are great things. Obviously, you got to find the right deal and there's a lot of ways to access real estate. So that's a bigger conversation for another time. But the nature of your work and the, the fact that it's all limited to W-2, the rental real estate, usually that's not going to run afoul of an employment agreement. And it will give you the ability to build financial momentum outside of just trading your hours for dollars. And it's a very accessible way, relatively accessible way to do that. Uh, finally, I want to give a, a quick shout out to an early podcast episode I did. Dr. Aaron Lewis joined me in episode 42, where I talk about the mother of all financial variables. What is the one variable that more than any other is going to determine your financial trajectory? I won't spoil that, but I will say it's important for academic anesthesiologists to check out episode 42, understand, quantify that variable for yourself and see what it says about your uh, financial future. So the bottom line in academic anesthesia, it's definitely possible to build wealth intelligently and even quickly. And to be clear, I, I, as I said earlier, I've seen academic centers offering big signing bonuses, big pay raises, trying to retain anesthesia staff, physicians, as well as CRNAs. This, there's never been a better time. Yes, this is true in academic anesthesia. There's never been a better time to negotiate a bonus, negotiate at the top end of the salary band, uh, get to you know 0.8 FTE as soon as possible if you want to, build passive income, optimize your savings rate, reduce your taxes, and live life on your own terms. So it's that easy, folks. <laughs> I'm obviously just kidding. But um, if you're out there and you're... Um, wondering, is it possible for me? I'm not one of those hotshot private practice people. How am I ever going to reach financial independence? Yes, it's absolutely possible. You just need to work within the constraints given to you and optimize your circumstances and you can get free sooner than you may even realize. So thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Hope everybody out there has a great week. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.